Our scripture reading is uh, from a passage in Jeremiah and also one from Luke. Uh, 1 Jeremiah 7, 7 through 10. Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make offerings to Baal, and then go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. And Luke 6, 43-45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces the good, and the evil person out of, the evil of, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. So glad to have you here and worshiping with us. Um, let me just take a moment and uh, pray for our time together in the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We need your presence. We need your help as we read your Word and as we pray together. We need you. And we, uh, we need you, your presence and we need your wisdom and we need your grace and we need your peace. And so we ask that you would reveal more of yourself, your glory, your greatness, and your love to us as we study your word now through your spirit and the fellowship that's found there through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, we have been going through a series on how to live right when things go wrong. And uh, this is the third uh, installment of that series. We're going we're gonna to look through ten different passages. And I want to take some time before we get in, to just read, there's a misprint in your bulletin. It was actually, it was a powerful passage from Jeremiah, but it's actually Jeremiah 17 that we'll read from. And I'm going to read through a few passages that talk about this image, that use this image of trees to describe our spirituality, the spirituality of God's people. All right, so listen to the continuity of the image. Psalm 1, which is often acknowledged as the gatekeeper for spirituality. The Psalter was the hymn book of God's people. They sang in worship the, the hymns that are, the psalms that are written in the Psalter. And Psalm 1 stands as a gatekeeper and it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, moving on to Jeremiah 17, we find this. God is talking to Judah about the sinfulness of them as a people. And he's talking about the impending judgment that's come. And he likens, he uses the image of a tree to talk about it. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. This is Jeremiah 17, 5, uh, 5 and on, 
5 through 10. He goes on to say, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And he goes on to say, But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, this, this image continues to move on through Scripture, and we see Jesus use it in Luke chapter 6. And uh, Jesus, Jesus actually has this passage that we had on the, in the bulletin, a part of a larger message that he was saying. And he was talking about the same kinds of things that Jeremiah was talking about. He was talking about the same kind of things that Psalm 1 was talking about. Listen to what he says. The context for our passage that we have in the bulletin. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And he also told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree, and here we are, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of, the, out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. You see the context. You see the imagery. You've got good tree and bad tree. You've got rootedness and not-so-good rootedness. Rootedness in good soil by water, not-so-good rootedness uh, in the desert places, in arid places where you're drying up and you're not bearing fruit. All right? This is an image that God uses to teach us how to think about our responses under trial, when trouble comes, and to think about how our relationship with him changes those things. And so we're going to talk, if you remember, what, for those of you who are visiting today and, and for the rest of you as a reminder, the first time, in our, the first passage we looked at in our series, we discovered that Jesus is our only asset. You remember? Jesus is our only asset. Everything else is a liability comparison with him. We also saw that the upward call of God, the new heavens and a new earth, not just heaven, but beyond that, to a transformation of all things in a created order that's urban, has the glory of the nations brought in to glorify him. If that's the direction of the kingdom, what should the direction of our lives be here as we extend and are ambassadors of the kingdom to others and to one another? Right, so we learned that. And then the second in the series, we learned that our troubles and trials help us to, number one, realign our purpose with God's purpose. Often there's a huge difference between the two, and it's worthwhile to remind each other and to seek out God's purpose with one another. But also the idea that it shows trials and troubles show us a way to draw closer to him, reveal ways in which we're not, um, we're not aligned with his purpose and we're not aligned with him personally as our God and our Savior. So today, what we're looking at is we're looking at our responses to the difficulties of life need transformation. 
our responses to the difficulties that we face need transformation through our relationship with God and the gospel. Okay? Let's get started. We're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at the trust and integrity that the Lord calls us to. And if you're taking notes, uh, you can follow up later. It's, it's Jeremiah 17, 7 and Luke 6, 44 that we're looking at in particular there. So we're going to look the, the trust and integrity the Lord calls us to. We're also going to take a look at our lack of trust and integrity and the results. And you can see that in Jeremiah 17, 9. We'll take a moment to look at true trust and integrity through those passages, and then transformation through the gospel and our relationship with God through the gospel. So let's briefly look at some of those things. First, why does our response, why do our responses to the difficulties of life need transformation through our relationship with God and the gospel? Why? And now I want you, as a reminder, I want you to remember that I'm about to paint a picture of what God calls us to. I'm about to paint a picture to what God calls us to. And the temptation of your heart as you listen is going to be one to listen to those things and, and use it as a checklist to check off, this is how I'm going to live life so that I can please God. We're not headed there, so check yourself when your mind works that way. See how many times your mind works that way as we, as we talk about it. We're going to see in, in, a, in a few moments after we cover this how there's no possible way we can actually live up to what God's calling us to. And we'll move on through Uh, looking at the hope that we have in Jesus. All right, so trust. Trust. Jeremiah and the theme in his chapter 17 share a common purpose. And the common purpose that his theme shows that the people had sinned before and therefore sinned before God and therefore must be punished. God can't look upon our, our sinfulness and our brokenness. He's holy. He's purely holy. Right? He's purely holy, so he can't do that. And the themes of the heart and the object of one's hope or trust are the thing that unite Jeremiah 17. There are a lot of different things that bubble up in that chapter. But the thing that unites it all are the themes of the heart and the objects of one's trust and hope. So, the image of the tree is used to show us what it's like for us to be blessed by God. What it's like to be blessed by God. The image of the tree. Verse 7 says, Being blessed means trust in in the Lord, watch the poetic coupling, right? Trust in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Trust in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. In and is, okay? Trust in the Lord deals with what he does, what he brings. And we've talked about that. When we pray to God, we often go to him and say, Lord, uh, bring me success in this interview. Give me calm my nerves. Don't help me not to be anxious. Uh, make sure that I uh, say the right things. Let me find favor in the eyes of this potential new employer. I'd like to get this job, right? Or we say, uh, Lord, you know, I, I want to be loving to my other half, and yet uh, when they're angry, I don't know how to do that. Like when they're, when they're angry and sort of sinning against me, I don't know how to do that, so show me. Right, so we have things that we ask of the Lord, And that's important, but it's also, notice Jeremiah's language, the trust is the Lord. So it's not just about what the Lord brings, but it's the fact that you are in relationship with the Lord himself, right? That was true of Jeremiah uh, calling the Lord's people, said, look, it's not just that you can trust the Lord and what he brings, but you can trust your relationship with him himself, and yet you're forgetting both of those things. Verse 8 
Jeremiah uses the analogy, and he talks about proper rootedness. And he says, a tree, he likens God's people. He said, what would blessing look like in your life? You've been searching spiritually. What would blessing look like? What would the end result? We begin with the end in mind, right? What would the end result look like if your spiritual life is blessed? And he uses the image of a tree. He says, you're planted by water. God likens himself to living water. And so a tree in good relationship with God is going to be, and look at the language Jeremiah uses. Some of you have Bibles around, so if you want to open up to 17 and look, you go ahead and take time to do that. But some of the list, I'm going to recall some of the language that he uses here and what Jeremiah gets across. First of all, the tree is planted. The tree is planted. There's a passiveness to that. Did you know that the activity before being planted relies on God's sovereign care and sovereign rooting you for your benefit and your growth and your nourishment. So planting is passive. The activity that happens before being planted is passive. And it's intentional. God puts you in soil where you can grow. It's near water. The water for life is consistent. It's abundant. It's flowing. So these are things that God would have you do to be blessed. That you realize that you're planted in the soil of his love. And then the activity that happens after you've been planted, you send out your roots, right? The tree sends out its roots by the stream. There's activity of relating to the water of life. You send out your roots to drink. This is the activity that happens after being planted. Now, if you realize the grace that you've been shown that God sovereignly brings you to himself and awakens life in you, brings life out of death, and gives you the ability, plants you in soil that's near streams of living water, then one of the things that you can do in response is to search out your roots, to send out your roots, to drink from his water. This is one of the reasons why a regular quiet time, a regular time in your Bible every day is so important because it's there that you take your roots and you root down into the truth of his gospel and his grace and your peace and you're shaped by his truth and you pray through it and you respond to him. And as we said a couple of the, through a couple of the um, passages we looked at earlier, you drink, you listen, you take time to not just present your requests, what he brings, but you take time to listen to him for who he is. His spirit works through his word as you read. That's part of what it means to come to him healthily, spiritually, in good standing. So you send out your roots, and when you do that, you don't fear when heat comes. There's security, there's no fear. The security in situations that would ordinarily threaten. The leaves, Jeremiah says, remain green. You're under threat, but you're still growing and vital and nourished. There's no anxiety when a season of drought comes. It's the end of worry about how things should go. You trust in the Lord and what he does, but you also trust the Lord himself, who he is. And drought doesn't wither your tree. Think about it. And we've talked about this in the different kinds of images Scripture gives it. If you are a lamp that's to be put on a stand, what does it say about your surrounding circumstances? It's dark. If you're salt that's give flavor to food, and we talked about this recently too, what does it mean to the food that you're going into? It's flavorless. These are talking about life around you. And in the same way, if you're not withering, 
and there's no water anywhere else around you, look at the purpose then. You continue to bear fruit. Despite arid and dryness in your surrounding circumstances, you're still growing and vital, still bearing fruit. For what? Well, it glorifies God. It shows, it shows that you are rooted in him and his love for you. But if everything else is arid around you and people are dying of thirst and starving and you're able to bear fruit, whether or not it's dry, can you, can you make the connection in your mind that you are to be the flavor the fruit, the nourishment, the flourishing that gives life to others. That God would not just have you grow closer to him, but he, he helps you to bear fruit so that it testifies to him. Others have hope around you. So there's fruit. So trust in the Lord and what he does, and trust, your trust is the Lord and who he is for the sake of celebrating him and nourishing others. But also, from Jeremiah, we moved on. I included the Luke passage because Jesus wants to be, us to be integral. Now listen, we're going to transition from Jeremiah and Judah to uh, Jesus and what's going on in the redemptive story. Remember, the redemptive story takes a long time to get to know. It unfolds throughout Scripture. There's a great continuity, but it's, it's hard. it takes time to get to know that. It's like a really big house with a lot of rooms. You've got to find out all the nooks and crannies, right? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus had been universally, universally popular, but all over Galilee and Judea, the news of him had aroused an interest not only among pe- common people, everyday people, working class people, but also among the religious leaders. And they viewed him with a more critical eye and began to see strange and indeed dangerous tendencies in what he said and did. The little parables which Luke records prior to our chapter at the end of chapter 5 show Jesus explaining the kind of difference between him and the Pharisees, which was coming into the open. And his teaching, when compared with traditional Jewish belief, was like a new garment that will replace the old, or a new wine skin that will burst the a new wine that will burst the old wine skins. Now, one commentator pointed out: look, old cloth or new cloth, it's still cloth. Old wine or new wine, it's still wine. And it's not a matter of replacing religion by philosophy or politics, but of replacing Phariseistic religion with Christian religion. Jesus can speak of his own new teaching still in terms of the old, for he's not abolishing it, but he's fulfilling it. He's fulfilling it. He himself is the fulfillment. So, one quality that God's people, the followers of Jesus, must show in light of Jesus fulfilling all of God's law, fulfilling all of the things God requires, is integrity. In other words, and the reason why I read that our passage about tree and fruit in Luke starts embedded in a passage that talks about don't judge others. Don't judge others. Don't do one thing yourself and then judge others by another standard. And what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is the standards, the rules you apply to your brother must be also applied to yourself. The standards you commend with your lips must also honor, uh, be honored in your life. And so Jesus calls out his listeners and he says, look, good trees don't bear bad fruit. Good trees don't bear bad fruit. You won't judge others and you will humbly acknowledge your own need and dependence upon the Lord if you're a good tree. That's one of the things that's characteristic of you. You'll have integrity. You'll be the same in one situation as another. You'll be the same with one group of people as you are with another group of people. And the good person out of the good treasure in his heart, trust in the Lord and what he does, and trust is the Lord, who he is, produces good. 
So you're not going to be using one standard for yourself and another for someone else. You're going to be trusting in God, growing closer to him as he shows you more about yourself under pressure and what stands in the way of you loving him more closely. For Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your abundance in your heart is what God does and who he is, then you won't do one thing and say another, Jesus says. You're going to trust God to change others' hearts And you're going to work in the meantime to look at your own heart, to understand the log in your own eye, and to not stand in the place of judge, but to trust God with that. Trust God with the transformation of others around you. You're going to work on the trouble that you face to learn how to grow closer to God, to rely on him for your relationship, to rely on him for your spiritual growth. So those are some of the things that God calls us to. And I said when we started looking at that Litany of things that your heart might be tempted to hear some of those things and say, I want to do that. I'd like to be blessed. I'd like to set my roots down by uh, streams of living, his living water. I'd like to be rooted and established. I'd like to bear fruit. I'd like to be fruitful in my walk, even when the pressure's on and I'm, I'm under trial. I would like to be able to do that. But here's the thing. There are reasons why you'll never become like the tree by streams of water bearing good fruit by trying very hard. There are reasons. We saw in Jeremiah that the heart is the seed of trust. Okay? Verse 7 in Jeremiah 17 says, Who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And yet we see also in Jeremiah that the heart's capacity to trust is broken. Verse 9, we see that we're untrusting. The seed of trust, our hearts are broken. Why? Our hearts are in a state of deception. The very opposite of trust. How can you trust something that deceives? And yet the Lord is saying that this is the state of our hearts, that they're deceptive beyond any other created thing, beyond anything else. I was um, talking with Ezra about playing a scary game, and uh, a scary video game, and it's billed on the, as an iPhone app is the scariest game ever. And um, I know my son, and I sat up with him late at night when he's been scared by something he shouldn't have watched. And we've let him, we've together worked on how to live out of wisdom and Guide, be guided by what would be healthy for us, what would be good for us, and to reject the things that are not good for us. So I didn't tell him, no, you can't download this game, but I talked with him about it, and I said, look, your reasoning about this game is curious to me because I know that you don't handle scary things very well and that you struggle with those and you have trouble going to sleep at night. And I'm the same way. I don't like to watch scary movies because it unsettles me in some strange way. And so I've just put them off. I don't, I don't, when I was very young, probably his age, I took thrill out of watching being frightened. But um, it's too connected with real darkness that I see in real people's lives in, in, in so many ways and real spiritual attack that I've encountered myself personally. And so I, I stay away, but I'm not trying to be legalistic about it and I want him to be able to respond to circumstances in life through wisdom, through the gospel. And so we took this moment to work together through it and I said, you know, I'm concerned because you know, Ezra, that, I, that I've, give, I've given you my input as your dad. I don't think it's going to be healthy for you. 
to play this game. And he said, yeah, I know, but I want to. Well, that's, why do you want to? You know the word he used for himself. He said, because I'm greedy. I want to have fun, and I want this thing so that I'll have fun. And so we took his, the faith that's growing in him and, the, and, and thought about the gospel. I said, do you know what that says? It says you don't trust God, and your trust is not God for giving you enough to have fun with. So instead of taking the means that you know are working your life, he gives you a father who loves God and repents to you and to God regularly and tries to model that and loves you and has your best interest. And your father has said, this is what, I don't think this is going to be helpful for you. I'm going to let you make the decision. I don't think it's going to be helpful for you. And you're putting that aside because you don't think you have enough resources from God to have fun. He said, I'm not going to download the game. <laughs> and, uh, and, so we've, you know, and so we're going to use that as a basis to learn to, to grow in his trust for God and that God has provided enough. But part of the issue is, is when the trouble's on, when we're tempted or when the trouble's on and the pressures that we're facing are on, we don't believe God has given us enough of what we need. But Peter tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. I pointed Ezra to that verse as well. So what happens with the heart? It's deceitful above all things, beyond any created thing. It's untrusting. It's spiritually sick, Jeremiah says. Desperately sick. The capacity to trust the Lord is sick in a desperate way. Our capacity to trust the Lord is sick in a desperate way. I've seen two women in my life die of heart disease. And the reason, the, the, one of the reasons that they died sooner rather than later was that their bodies lied to the test that was given to their heart to show that they actually had a heart attack. And so without that being caught, there was irreparable damage and it went downhill very fast from there. Irreparably sick. Our hearts, Jeremiah says, are irreparably sick, desperately sick in our ability to trust God. And it's cognitively dissonant, which is one of the things that, that was surprising Ezra because as I tried to just work with him on the logic of what he knew to be true about what the Lord has given him and what he wanted to be true about playing this game, he was starting to feel the dissonance, the cognitive dissonance. It doesn't make sense, Dad. It doesn't make sense that I would want to go after something that is going to scare me and make me have trouble sleeping. And it doesn't make sense that I would want to do something different than what you're advising me out of your life. I know that you love me and I know you want my best. It doesn't make sense. That's right. Don't forget, sin doesn't make sense. We want to know why, but why doesn't solve it? Only God can. And we'll get to that. But the worst thing about our inability to do all of these things is that God is putting us to the test. Verse 10, we have revelation from God about who he is. He says, I, the Lord, there's no one who understands the heart and is capable of testing the mind except him. That's what he does. I'm the Lord, I do it. I evaluate the results of your test. I search your heart. I test your mind. I grade everyone. How do I grade you? According to your ways. I won't even use my standard. I'll use yours. According to your ways, according to the fruit of your deeds. How are you doing? Have you been anxious lately? There's a command in Scripture, do not be anxious. How are you doing with being blessed? 
and checking off the checklist, all the things that we read about, my heart used to jump. I felt patriotic, in a sense, by looking at the checklist that the Lord gave us to do. Until you come face to face with the other part of Jeremiah, which is that there's no way you can possibly do them. There's no way that you can live up to what the Lord is requiring of you. So our lack of trust and integrity and the results, what hope is there? What hope is there? Friends, there is one who was trusting and integral. So integral it killed him. He was trusting and integral perfectly. He was trusting and integral wholly. Jesus is the truly well-rooted tree. And you're grafted into him by your faith in what he's done for you. You're not left to your own devices. You're not left to your own successes or failures. It's too much weight for you. Do you feel it? You can't do that. But you have one who has, and he loves you, and he's pursued you. Jesus played in other places on the same idea of being rooted and bearing fruit. He uses one illustration in John 15. He says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, listen to what he says, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is your tree. He's who you're rooted in. You're grafted into him. He's your representative. He's the one who's rooted down perfectly. He's the one who bears fruit, regardless of the weight that he was under. He's like, he's blessed. He trusts in the Lord, and his trust is the Lord. He stayed his ground, and we looked last week, not, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Despite going to the cross, despite facing so many things, he's planted by water, he sends out his roots by streams. He always went away to pray. You know, one of the things as you um, go through your graduate programs, you go through college, you go through your career, your, um, one of the things that you're trying to do is, is gain security for yourself. And so you're, you're busy. You're busy. And sometimes you get driven. And sometimes you take your identity from how people relate to you through what you do. And Jesus was never driven, but he was zealous. You'll notice that he goes away in the accounts of his life. And he, he, lots of things to do, lots of things that are important and worthwhile to do. He came proclaiming the kingdom had come. He came to the sick and those who are in need of healing. He came, but the reality is he also went away and he spent time with his father. And he communed with him. And he took time away. So he was zealous for God's uh, plan for what he was there to do, but he also wasn't driven by it. You notice how he delays on the, on, the, on the route to heal somebody, and the person dies, and he displays God's kingdom, that God's timing is perfect, but he doesn't let anything rush him. His leaves remain green. There's no anxiety. 
no drought. It continues to bear fruit despite arid and dryness of surrounding circumstances of facing the cross. He's still praying on the cross. He's still quoting psalms in his scripture. He's still praying for the sake of those who were, who were his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was all of those things. He was the perfect tree rooted and established in God's law, in God's authority, in God's promises. He lived in that life that you should have lived. And yet Jesus was not judged according to his ways or the fruit of his deeds. He was judged according to your ways and the fruit of your deeds. He wasn't evaluated on his results. He was evaluated on your results. He wasn't graded on his performance on God's test of his heart and mind and life. He was graded on your performance of God's test on your mind, your heart, and your life. He took the curse of your lack of rootedness as a bad tree, unable to bear fruit. Your lack of trust in God and and of God in relationship with him so that you could be firmly rooted, so that you could be firmly grounded in his love. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 17, I pray that you may be firmly rooted and grounded in his love. It's tree language again. He came so that you wouldn't be uprooted. Jesus was hung on the tree to take your curse. Sandwiched between Genesis and Revelation is the tree, the cross of salvation, which is the ultimate ground of both curse and blessing, judgment and healing. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 speaks of the curse on the sin-bearing Savior who hung on the tree, a theme picked up again by the Apostle Peter. Those draw upon the Old Testament tradition in Deuteronomy 21 that an executed person who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The cursing of Christ brought about both the destruction of death and the renewal of life and immortality through the gospel, and all of this came through the tree. Friends, our failure, our failure to be rooted down is due to our functional rejection of what he did. It's due to our functional rejection of what he did. You'll never be rooted down in the right way or bearing fruit when the pressure is on until you first believe in until you first rest in and rejoice in the one to whom the good tree, one who is blessed by God for his trust in him and of him, points. Your joy and confidence under trials won't be sufficient unless you see yourself perfect in God's eye in your true tree because that one is perfect. And if you're in him, God counts that righteousness as your own. Remembering him frees our hearts so that we can change like this. So some examples. What does that look like? Transforming our responses to trouble. Well, how about discouragement in the gospel? How about discouragement in the gospel? I've talked to a lot of you over the several weeks and months recently, and there's discouragement going on for you. How do you handle that in the gospel? When you're depressed, if your tendency, I'm going to do some contrasting before we get to the gospel applied here. If your tendency is moralism, and remember we said that moralism is the view that you're acceptable to God, the world, and others, and yourself through what? Through your attainments. That's moralism. The gospel says that you're acceptable through Jesus' attainments. But moralism says it's through your attainments. If your tendency is towards moralism, when you're depressed, you'll tend to work on behavior. 
Have you seen that in yourself? You'll tend to work on behavior. You want to pick yourself up out of your depression by stopping feeling that way and following the rules more closely. And you'll ask yourself things like, how can I be acceptable to God, the world, the others, and myself if I'm depressed? What am I attaining through that? Just buck up and do what God requires. Friends, there's no life in that. There's no life in that. Or on the other hand, you might have the tendency to think of your spirituality as being more relative. And we haven't taken time to define that, so let's do that now. If you're thinking of of spirituality as more relative, which is the belief that everyone must determine what is right and wrong, and the tendency to see God as loving or impersonal force only, without that component of he's also just and judging, if that's your tendency, you're going to work on how you feel. Not just what you do, but how you feel. You want to love and accept yourself as a solution. You're going to ask yourself things like, how can I be loving and accepting myself if I'm depressed? Why am I depressed? It must be because I'm not loving and accepting myself. But there's no life in that either. In the gospel, assuming that there's no physiological basis for the depression, which sometimes there is, friends, you've got to know that. It's okay to get help. You've got to know that. Sometimes there's physiological basis for depression. But sometimes, sometimes it deals with an aspect of keeping both of those things that we just talked about together. I have a pastor friend who talked about two brothers and they lost someone in their life. And the one brother came to the pastor for counsel and said, I don't know how to apply the gospel. I am so saddened. And so the pastor worked with him and he started to change in his hope for the gospel. And he started to weather his trials by going closer to God, by depending on his grace. And he started to get better. He started to lift out of his depression. But the other brother, the pastor was saying the same things to the other brother, and his depression got worse and worse and worse. And so the pastor said, what's going on? They're both believers. They're both wanting to be rooted and established in Christ's love, but one was not getting better. So the pastor asked him, what have you changed since the death of this person that you love? What have you changed? And the guy said, well, I was running faithfully for the last you know, couple of decades, 10 miles a day. And when this person I loved died, I just stopped. And he said, would you please go run? And so he went out and he ran and, you know, he started to lift. And you see, it's not just, it's not just, the spiritual maladies, but there's a holistic nature to the way that we lift up and can respond to God in the gospel. The gospel shows us both aspects of approach are important. It leads us to examine ourselves inwardly and say, something in my life has become more important than my relationship with God. My trust in the Lord, what he does, and my trust is the Lord, who he is. And yet that trust has been given to something else and I'm prevented from having it and so discouraged. The example I gave you of Ezra with, with greed that he talked about. Why was he discouraged? Because he couldn't have what he wanted. His heart was set on something else. And yet, because of Jesus' work on my behalf, I can have my trust be in the Lord, what he does. I can have my trust be in the Lord, who he is. And I don't have to be discouraged and depressed about not having this particular thing in my life. Action is important, like the runner. Self-examination is important, But separately, they won't heal you. It's only when they come together in what Jesus has done will you begin to lift. Let's take another example, uh, approach to suffering. When you suffer, 
If your tendency is towards moralism, the view is that you're acceptable to God, the world, yourself, others, through your attainments. You remember that you'll, you'll tend to focus on your behavior. So you simply assume this. If you're a moralist, this is how you deal with suffering. You assume, I must be bad. I must be bad to be suffering like this. And you're under guilt, though there's always an anger towards God. You're under guilt, though there's an anger towards God too. You, why? Because moralists believe that God owes them. If you're living life not in the gospel, but out of your attainments, not through Jesus' attainments, but your attainments, you believe that God owes you. The whole point of moralism is to put God in one's debt. Because you have been so moral, you feel that you don't really deserve suffering. So moralism tears you up. For at one level you think, what did I do to deserve this? But at another level you think, I probably did everything to deserve this. So if the moralist suffers, he or she must either feel mad at God because I've been performing well and you owe me God. Or mad at self because I have not been performing well. Or both. Remember, sin doesn't make sense. Those are some evidences that you can look for in your life when things don't make sense about the way that you're handling your suffering. On the other hand, if your tendency is to think of your spirituality as being more relative, the belief that everyone must determine what is right and wrong, the tendency to see God as a loving and impersonal fourth, if that's your tendency to handle suffering, then you're going to feel justified in avoiding suffering at all costs. You're going to feel justified in avoiding it. And you're going to see yourself lying and cheating and breaking promises because it's okay because you're trying to avoid the suffering. But when suffering does come, you're going to lay the fault at God's doorstep, claiming that he must be either unjust or impotent. But the cross shows us that God redeemed us through suffering, through suffering, that he suffered not that we might not suffer, but then in our suffering we could become like him. Since both the moralist and the relativist ignore cross in different ways, both of those ways are confusing, devastating, and suffering can undo you. Christ's passion in the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus felt real feelings of hurt, real feelings of betrayal, real feelings of fear, and yet he chose to trust God during the hardest week of his earthly life. The book that we are, uh, the home meeting leaders are using to accompany this series deals with how what we think about something shapes how we feel about it and how we react. And there's a great example of, imagine that you're home alone, Everyone else has gone out, and you're sitting home alone, and it's at nighttime, and then you hear the back door knob jiggling back and forth. Jiggle, 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 jiggle. Now, depending on where you live, let's say that you live um, in Brewery Town, and there's a lot of crime around you, and you hear that, and you jiggle, 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 and you're nervous. And you're thinking, somebody must be trying to break in. And that's not an unreasonable assumption, but you're nervous. And then the door opens, and in comes your son from college saying, surprise, I'm home early. And your thinking comes in line with the truth of the situation and how your heart feel changes, right? You're no longer nervous and scared, but you're delighted. In the same way, in the midst of suffering, God doesn't change who he is. His goodness doesn't change. We've looked at that. He is good all the time. But in your suffering, you don't tend to think that. Nor do I. In your suffering, you tend to doubt him. 
Jesus felt really deep feelings of hurt, betrayal, and sadness and fear, and yet he chose to trust God during the hardest week of his earthly life. Friends, we cannot trust God with just intellect alone. We cannot trust God with just intellect alone. We must struggle daily to expand our faith beyond our head and down into our heart. Take what we know about gospel to be true and let it break down into our heart and explode, become explosively true in our innermost being so that we live life even in the midst of suffering, that we respond to suffering as though that's true. We walk in line with the truth of the gospel. We keep in step with the Spirit. Those are things that Paul says. Our responses to difficulties of life need transformation through our relationship with God and the gospel. Will you come to him? Will you be transformed in the way you respond to things? Because he was rooted and established. And though he was rooted and established as the perfect tree, he was uprooted and thrown under the weight of God's judgment so that you could come to him freely. Will you do that? Will you do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And we thank you uh, first for the mothers in our midst who bore their children, who protect them, who guide them, who provide for them, and most importantly, delight over them. Father, you see and you know their hearts. You understand them with deep compassion. You care. Your empathy directs your thoughts and actions, and you are to them their greatest advocate. Attending to them, you lay aside day after day your dreams, your plans, your preferences, so needs that they may thrive. To each of us, to the mothers especially, belongs this day that the Lord has made to lift us up, to remind us that our labor is never in vain when we're rooted and established in the one who was the true tree. And that you, Jesus, will keep all that we entrust to you until that day, which now eye cannot see, and ear cannot hear, and the mind cannot conceive. But you know, Lord, what will be restored and transformed and given. You have called us not, you've given us not only the privilege to serve you, because you served us, but you called us friends. Thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence, of being able to root down, of being able to bear fruit, of being able to have an ever, never-ending supply of water, living water to drink from and give us life and give life to others through that. Be with us now as we continue worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.